I certainly appreciate the reading of the scripture today and uh, the words of introduction. Inter- introductions so often are humbling, um, but certainly one thing I affirm is the friendship that has developed with Jeff across the last five years and what a joy it is to serve with him and in this community. Um, we truly are blessed to be a part of this community. Um, if you've noticed, in some unusual places, like over the bathroom stalls or places, our uh, chapel announcements, the, you may have noticed the theme for this semester. Um, mark my ministry, studies and discipleship. Now, maybe not every sermon this semester will um, follow that train, but many will. And I've chosen to, to tie into that theme today. Um, and actually, one of the things that really helped me identify what I wanted to share today was Dr. Freimeyer's Jeff sermon last week. Um, because as he preached last week from Mark 1, 1 through 8, which has just been read for us so beautifully, something captured my attention that in years of studying Scripture, I'd never paid attention to before. And the reading of this Scripture this morning really encouraged me because Um, If you've sat through some of the biblical studies classes and you've talked about the interpretation of Scripture or the translation of Scripture, you know that Scripture is very carefully translated. Groups of biblical scholars and anthropologists and communicators of the Word all come together to translate the text. And they try to understand the meaning of the text and clearly communicate that in ways that we will understand today. And had I only read the text for, that we use today, the particular translation, I would have not had a message today. So maybe I should sit down. <laughs> but I was really encouraged to know that a group of scholars um, from different disciplines had overlooked, maybe intentionally, but overlooked or left out the very thing that I had not paid attention to. So to help us catch a glimpse of where I want us to focus today, I'm going to read just the first verse and a half from the ESV. Could have chosen at least half a dozen other versions. I double-checked quickly after having seen the voice interpretation to make sure that I wasn't in the wrong translation. And um, these are the words of Mark according to the ESV. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now the voice beautifully maps that piece out, maps out the significance, a little bit of the background, kind of giving us some of those commentary notes of what this means. But again, the text, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah. Now, last week, Jeff called our attention. And he reminded us that beginnings are often very difficult and very challenging. And one of the very reasons was the title of his sermon, The Beginning is Never the Beginning. So, as we see in this passage, Mark's doing the very thing. He says, in the beginning, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah. I mean, Mark just made a 700-year leap. He said, in the beginning, he's about to announce... Jesus Christ, who is now on earth, is in their midst, is among them. And when he says, in the beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ, his first explanation, his first descriptor 
goes all the way back to Isaiah, 700 years earlier. But when Jeff pointed that out last week, I thought, wow, that is an essential ingredient of discipleship, right there. When we say, Lord, mark my ministry, mark my ministry according to your character, to your nature, to who you are, to the kind of person you want me to be, the life you want me to live, the ministry that you are calling me to, that little implicit statement is a tremendous teaching. Because it reminds us, it tells us that the beginning was well over 700 years in the making. (laughs) The beginning didn't happen the day that Mark pulled out his pen and decided to start writing. It didn't even begin the day that Jesus was born. It didn't even begin when Joseph received that message from the angel that that the baby that was going to be born to Mary was of the Holy Spirit. And actually, it didn't even begin in Isaiah. It went all the way back to the garden and according to Ephesians, even to the beginning of time before creation, in the mind and in the heart of God, He knew where He was headed. And He knew the day would come when He would send His only Son, Jesus Christ, to bring to us the good news, the gospel that would turn the world upside down, that would take a fallen and broken humanity that desperately needed a Savior. And point us back to God. And give us a way, a pathway back to God. But that story was not only hundreds of years, but even thousands of years, millennia in unfolding. And as we think about that this morning, as we think about that essential ingredient of discipleship, it begins to speak to us in our own lives. As we begin to be reminded that not only in the person of Jesus, but in the work of God as a whole, God's work is never limited to here and now, to this moment, to this little snapshot of my life. God's work began even before I was, before any of us were. And God's work continues here and now, and it will project into the future beyond what we can ever imagine. The scope of God's work is so far greater than what we often imagine. And it is particularly difficult for us in the day and age in which we live. Because even if you just backed up a century, coming to campus today, you wouldn't have done it today for many of you. That quick two-hour car drive, that would have been more like a couple of days on horseback. Or you take it back a few more centuries, that would have been a pretty long walk. We wouldn't be here yet unless we began way before we began. So we live in a world in a time where we walk outside after chapel and we're a hot lunch not provided. You may be pulling lunches out of the refrigerator and you stick them in the microwave and you have a hot meal. Some of us even do that as a cheat. Maybe not the healthiest thing in the world, but we go to the freezer section of the supermarket and we have a nice stack in our freezer where we pull dinner out, pop it in the microwave, we have a meal. And if we don't have the freezer meal in the microwave, we drive down the street and pull into Wendy's and we walk up and say, I want and I have. Because we're used to fast food. We're used to getting from one place to another in a hurry. So when God says, 700 years unfolding a plan, through Isaiah he gave a promise that it wasn't till 700 years later that that was fulfilled. That goes so far beyond the scope of our imaginations, 
of the way we tend to live our lives, the way we often even tend to pray our prayers. Because we live in a world and so often fall into the trap of instant gratification where we want it and we want it now. And we dare not pray for patience because God might actually test us to allow us to cultivate patience in our lives. Yet, one of the things I think that prepared me to hear those words last week was some readings I was doing from the early church fathers. And there was a common theme among the early church fathers as they wrote about the life of the early church and about the work of God. And there's actually a phrase that often comes up that they saw as one of the great virtues that I've seldom seen exalted or lifted up. I don't know that I've ever heard a sermon that emphasized this as a virtue. Now, I've heard the call to prayer, like I just mentioned, um, towards patience. But among the early church fathers, many of them saw that as one of the principal virtues of the Christian life. And as they began to write about patience, a more contemporary author writing about their works talked about the patient ferment of the early church. And hence my title today, The Patient ferment of discipleship because not only in the life of the church has God been doing something that takes time to ferment to get ripe to become really good to become truly enjoyable something that that you would want to uh, have you won't have here on campus um, but that patient ferment it takes time that's why there's a saying good things come to people who wait yet how difficult it is for us to practice that how difficult it is for us to live in a way that exemplifies that virtue, the virtue of patience. Yet that virtue is so much of who God is, and it's, it's peppered throughout Scripture in so many different ways. Passages that we often pull out of their context and remember that speak of patience, speak of waiting, um, Psalms 46. Now, if I just used 46, 10a, you'd be like, yeah, I know that one. But if you go to Psalms 46, it actually begins to say, starting with verse 8, Come, behold the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. This is an action-packed movie going on here. And then the psalmist writes, Be still and know that I am God for I will be exalted among the nations. When you put it into context, it's like, I love the song now that says, um, oh, it's, I was going to say it, now it's escaped me. Um, it's popular on the radio right now, but it said, breathe, just breathe. But I love what the guy did musically with the song. Because musically, that song starts, it's just like pushing, pushing, pushing. You feel the rhythm, the drive. And then all of a sudden, he takes the foot off the accelerator and goes, just breathe. Just breathe. That's almost what I think the psalmist is doing here. The accelerators to the floor talking about how great, how incredible, how mighty is God. And it's in a war scene and how God will break the bow and shatter the spear and He will make war cease. Be still and know that I am God for I am exalted among the nations. That's where patience finds its anchor. That's where patience is born. 
It's in the person and character of God, the very nature of God that anchors us and secures us. That's why in Isaiah, we also encounter this incredible passage, Isaiah 40, 28 through 31, where Isaiah writes, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. They who wait upon the Lord. But right there couched in this beautiful passage that talks about the character of God, God's strength, how God doesn't grow weary, how God doesn't faint. And then with that piece wedged in the middle about they that wait upon the Lord, what happens? We actually begin to reflect the character of God. That as we wait upon the Lord, we become more like God. And then we don't grow weary. We don't faint. We even soar on wings like eagles. But it's because of who God is as He begins to get in us and live through us. But again, it's when we wait. We sang earlier and Dawn gave a a beautiful introduction to the song, Wait Upon the Lord, or Wait on the Lord. Because as we sing that waiting here for you, it's not that we're waiting for God to show up, as she so well said, because God is present here among us. Yet how often do we need that shift in our own orientation, our own disposition to have the patience to wait for God? How many of us have come to that place in life where we were facing an important decision and, and God wasn't acting quite as quickly as we thought He should? The answer wasn't coming, so we stepped right out because we knew what to do. We had the answer later to regret, regret what we had done. Because it wasn't God's time. It may have not even been God's way. But we rushed ahead. The patience. That patient ferment of discipleship. The way that God calls us to wait upon Him. To be still in His presence. So that His character, His nature can get in us and take a hold of us. And so that He can be the one who's in the driver's seat. Just the other day, I was having a great conversation with a young friend who's in a season of discernment. And he used the illustration. He says, I feel like I've been driving down the road and I've had God with me. And I take him with me everywhere I go. But I'm the one in the driver's seat. And I feel like what God is telling me is he wants in the driver's seat so that he begins to take me where he wants to go and how he wants to work and move in my life. 700 years from the prophecy of Isaiah to the fulfillment and the proclamation that Mark would bring to us of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Another wonderful example of that, and this one's not quite 700 years. It's actually only a tenth of that, 70 years. That's no big deal. Who here today would like to get a promise that you knew in 70 years God was going to do X in your life? Do we have anybody who's up for that one? (laughs) 
But here, as Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 29, writes to the people of Israel, there's a little passage, once again, that we love to pull out of the context, that about when you're about to graduate or you're starting a new job or you're facing a really difficult situation, how many have heard or maybe even used this passage? For I know the plans I have for you. Plan, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. We like that promise. We want to take a hold of that promise. But if we start one verse earlier, we might hesitate for a moment at least. Because actually the verse before says in verse 10, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. That means that God was giving a promise through Jeremiah to the people of Israel that the vast majority of them would not see realized in their life and in their day. But the incredible thing with that is it reveals something about how God works and what He is doing. Again, the scope of God's activity is so much bigger than we can even imagine. And we also see that when we move to the New Testament because as we see in its context, that unfolding of God's message, the patient ferment in the life of the church and in the life of discipleship. When we go to Hebrews, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, uh, really we get almost the summary of the book of Hebrews. If you're a good IBS student, you know that right there you have a generalization. It's giving you a proclamation of what the rest of the book is going to tell you about. Because in Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, we read the following. Longer ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name He has, has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So there, the author of Hebrews is introducing the person of Jesus, but he introduces Him in a way that makes us realize how God has been preparing for the coming of Jesus for centuries before. How God has used many different prophets, many different kings and leaders to proclaim His message. Even the angels have been God's messengers. For centuries, that was the way the story was unfolding. Until Jesus, God made man, came among us and revealed the fullness of the gospel. And when Jesus came among us, we saw a story that had been unfolding for centuries become a present reality. That's why it says that Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. Because it says, if we think scripturally, once someone is seated, it means the work is done. He has completed what He came to do. Yet, oh, how I need the Lord to mark my ministry. So the reality is it is here and it is not yet. There are so many ways that I know that God continues to work out in me that incredible transformation 
where he continues to mark my life and mark my ministry. And it is taking time and it will take time. And the scope of what God is doing began before I ever was and it will last beyond what I will be. But the wonderful thing is we are participating in this incredible story of God. And if we walk faithfully with God, if we choose to wait upon Him, if we choose to be still and know that He is God in the midst of all His glory, all His might, all His strength, all His wonder, then even when the difficult days come, even when ministry doesn't seem to be working out the way we want it to work out, when the challenges are greater than we think we have the the strength to face, when that exam is tomorrow and you have not studied enough yet, When you have to turn that paper in at midnight and you're counting the hours, you're saying, Lord, what have you gotten me into? And I see Lisette saying, amen, (laughs) as she works towards her comps in a few weeks now. Um, But we face those situations. And if we see it through the eyes of God, if we can capture things through the vision that Mark brings to us right here at the beginning of the gospel, as it was written in Isaiah, as Isaiah has said 700 years ago, God has spoken into our lives long before we ever responded, long before we ever knew to respond. And he will continue to speak into our lives and through our lives far beyond what we can imagine. As we cry out to the Lord that he would mark our ministry, at the conclusion of the passage we read today, there is an incredible promise for each and every one of us. Because we see in in the ministry of John, he says, I've washed you here through baptism with water. But when he gets here, when Jesus, the Son of God, gets here, he will wash you in the Spirit of God. And this is the promise that has been passed on to us, the promise that is also repeated in the book of Acts when it talks about the Holy Spirit coming up on us and how we will become witnesses. We will be witnesses of Jesus because we're going to be changed from the inside out. It's not just something we do, it is who we are and who we are becoming. This is what God is doing in us and through us here today. And we all know it is here and it is not yet. It is here. We have experienced and heard the call of Jesus as he draws us to himself. We have studied scriptures. We have sat in classes where God has spoken into our hearts and into our lives. And we know we are not who we were. But we also know we are not who God intends for us to be. Because the patient ferment of discipleship continues in our lives. May we not get in a hurry. May we not rush ahead, but may we take hold of the promises and the one who gives the promises so that each day we are becoming more and more who he is shaping us to be. And today as we gather, we have an incredible opportunity to be reminded of the here and not yet as we gather around this table. We gather around the table that reminds us of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what he has done for us, but not only what he has done for us, what he continues to do in us and will do through us. Because every time we do this, we remember Jesus. The unfolding story that has not stopped unfolding. 
in our lives nor in the life of the church. So may we participate in the patient ferment of discipleship that God calls us to. Thanks be to God. Right that Jesus was betrayed, the disciples gathered in an upper room in Jerusalem, a place where they had gathered to do discipleship, where they had gathered to do the Passover for almost a millennium. Imagine being in a place where the same ritual had taken place for literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years was the same liturgy. It tied them to their past. The same story of the exodus and the miracle of God and what he had brought them through that tied them to the nature of God and to who he is, to who he was, and to who he continued to be. And with all of that tradition and all of that history and all of that preparation and all of that patient ferment of discipleship in the life of the disciples, Jesus looked at them and said, but tonight, a new covenant I give you. And he took the bread, he broke it, he took the cup, and he blessed it, and he offered it to them and said, this is my body and this is my blood. And now for 2,000 years, more, we have been gathering, going over the same ritual as they gathered with a thousand-year history of doing the Passover. We gather with a 2,000-year-old history of doing this very service because as God does, he continues to do. As God plants, he waters and grow. As God begins, he continues and as he does, he develops, and we become. I want to remind you that as you come and you eat and you drink and you take, that this moment, this experience, has been thousands of years in the making. And should the Lord tarry, it will continue to be a part of that which we embrace for years and years and years to come. For God somehow in amazement connects us with all that he has done, not just with what he is doing in the moment, but with all that he has done over the course of history. And so I invite you to remember that you are part of a past when you come and eat and drink, a glorious and grand past. And I invite you to remember that you are part of a future, a glorious and grand future, as you come and eat and as you come and drink. For Jesus has given us this privilege. Pray with me. In Jesus, in Jesus' name, we offer up ourselves. To you, O oh Jesus, in your name, we offer our lives. To you, O oh Jesus, 
in your precious presence we offer ourselves and ask, O oh Lord, that you would transform us in the coming and in the sharing and in the taking. We ask your blessings not just upon these elements, but upon the transforming power of your Spirit as we engage with you in these moments. Help us, O oh Lord, to be all that you have called us and desired us to be. Thank you for giving us a part in this grand and glorious line of discipleship. In Jesus' name. Amen. I have a couple that will be helping me to serve if you would come, please.
it's well with me, not because I control my circumstance. It is well with me because I don't control my circumstance. It is well with me because God is the one who controls. God is the one who has the power. God is the one who sees me through. Today, yesterday, forever. May the Spirit of the Lord go with you. May his grace abound within you. And may you constantly and consistently be led by his spirit into the place where he desires you to go. And may you go knowing that the grace of God has been upon you and that it is well with you no matter what circumstance you find yourself in. For God is greater than anything you will face. This is the promise that he has given. This is the promise in which we live. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen. God bless you. Greet somebody around you on the way out. You may not need to do it, but they may need to have a hand shaken.